This is Let's Break Good, the podcast where we never settle for good enough. Our interview today is with Jean-Martin Bauer, country director at the World Food Program in Congo, Brazzaville. Jean-Martin has spent nearly 20 years fighting hunger across Africa and the world with the United Nations. In this episode, we'll get into what it takes to mobilize huge amounts of aid during a crisis in an area of the world that cars cannot go and mobile phone networks don't reach. We'll look at how simple solutions can create a big impact and investigate common misconceptions and pitfalls in humanitarian response. Also, one tasty idea that promises to nourish kids across the Congo. Let's dig into it. Let's get started. I want to break free. You recently tweeted something that caught my attention. Amateurs talk strategy, professionals talk logistics. And you pointed out the fact that your team at the World Food Program in Congo delivered 13 tons of personal protective equipment to eight different hospitals. Tell me, how do you pull off a feat like that in a country that can be so difficult to traverse? At one point, the um, I, I get a phone call from um, from the Minister of Health and she says, look, we need uh, we need your help. We need the, the World Food Program's assistance to, to ship medical supplies to, to, to these hospitals and health centers. We sat down with her team and made a plan uh, to, to get uh, this equipment, which included um, masks, uh, surgical gowns, uh, even testing equipment uh, to the entire country. Uh, the, the, the concern was really to make sure that all parts of Congo would, uh, would receive uh, their allotment of, of, of medical equipment. And the reason why uh, we got a call from the government is that we have assets in place in Congo. We have a fleet of trucks. Uh, the pride of the fleet is actually two uh, Kamaz six by six trucks. These are trucks that can carry uh, 20 tons of equipment. They can go everywhere uh, during all seasons of the, of the year. They can make it through the, the muddy quagmires that uh, one finds in Congo. And uh, they're, they're quite robust as well. They're, they're easy to, uh, oh, they don't break down often and they're also easy to repair uh, for, for the local mechanics. So, so th- th- those, are, those are the pride of um, those, those two Kamaz trucks. Uh, we also have light vehicles that uh, they're able to take smaller loads to, to smaller health centers, even, even if uh, they, they happen to be in very remote areas. Congo is a, a country that's about the size of Montana. It's about 4.5 million people. Most of the population is concentrated in two cities. Pointe Noire, the port on the South Atlantic Ocean, and Brazzaville on the Congo River. And we use those two points, uh, Pointe Noire and Brazzaville, as, as the main um, um, elements in our logistic strategy. Uh, so when we bring things in by sea, it's through Pointe Noire, then by road to Brazzaville. And to get to the north of the country, all deliveries uh, will take place by, uh, by river. Um, upstream from Brazzaville, there are more than... Uh, um, more than a thousand miles of navigable river on the Congo River itself and on tributaries uh, that allow WFP and, and, and anyone else to, to ship uh, items efficiently and, and quickly uh, to, to different parts of the country. So when, when, when we describe uh, logistics, uh, it's first of all a fascinating exercise in geography and economics uh, and coordination, uh, but it, it, it's also what, what's needed in order to, to achieve the, uh, the very ambitious uh, 
uh, goals that, that, that humanitarians have in, in, in responding to COVID and responding to other emergencies in the country. And what is that journey like to some of these areas? I bet you've taken them yourself. What is it like trying to get materials from that come in internationally to these more far-flung remote areas? What is a trip like that like? What challenges do you face? Well, the, the, the challenges are, um, first of all, the, 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 long, the long distances involved here. Uh, the, the north of Congo is sparsely populated. Uh, the, this is Central Africa, so it's uh, uh, very much um, it's the jungle. Settlements are along the rivers. You, know, you can't use your, um, um, well, you can't use the trucks I just described in, in, in that part of the country because uh, uh, people live by, by the rivers. And it, it's, it's actually a, a situation where you need to be entirely independent. You need to have your own capabilities in order to deliver. You can't rely on a subcontractor or you need to limit your reliance on, on subcontractors to the minimum. You need your own assets, your own people, your own uh, trucks, your own boats in order to get the job done. You need to be able to work without, uh, um, without cell phones because you, you, you will lose track of your shipments. Um, so you, you rely on things like uh, Thraya phones or satellite, uh, satellite phones uh, when it's possible. You need to be able to go through a period of days without any news uh, from your team or from uh, the cargo they're carrying. Uh, and trust them to to get it to where it needs to where it needs to be. You also need a, a strong deep field presence. So WFP has a, a offices all over Congo. We have offices in five locations that are outside the capital city, and that helps us uh, ensure that uh, we are in the deep field with the nonprofits, with the authorities, with with the government to, to ensure that uh, uh, the assistance gets to where it needs to be. Uh, the most remote location we have is in a place called Betu. Uh, Betu is on the Central African border uh, in the north of Brazzaville. It's 1,400 kilometers from Brazzaville. It takes two days to drive there. Only half of the way is, is paved. Uh, the half of the road is, is through the, uh, the Central African jungle. It's actually in another hemisphere. Brazzaville is southern hemisphere, and Betu is in the northern hemisphere. So the seasons are flipped over. Uh, it, it feels like the, the far west. Um, what you have up there are... Uh, uh, the, uh, there's a big timber company and a big refugee camp. Uh, and so it's, it's something out of a science fiction movie, really. Uh, and uh, being able to operate in that environment just requires a lot of independence and a lot of uh, dedication from, uh, from the team uh, that, are, that are at work every day. And, and then how do you know what the needs are in these areas if they're so far out there and you may, not have, you may have limited communication? How do you know how much they need? How much is enough? What is that preparation and decision-making process like? Well, Joe, I can give you an example of what happened late last year, early this year. The entire Congo River Basin was affected by dramatic flooding, the worst flooding uh, that that area had witnessed since 1961, at least, so a, a bad flood event. The first information we were able to get from the area were reports from our field staff, but we didn't really understand the full scale uh, of, the, of the disaster. So we, we teamed up with uh, Cloud to Street. It's a tech company that specializes in geospatial analysis. And they were able to pull uh, information from satellite imagery to estimate the number of people who had been affected by this flooding. They were able to use high-resolution satellite imagery and imagery uh, on, on human settlements 
uh, to understand who'd been affected. The issue with flooding is quite often is that you hear there's a flood and then you, numbers come out saying uh, this many thousand people have been affected, but there's very little way to check. Uh, and the reliability of those numbers are often um, an issue for us. But using satellite imagery in this way allowed us to have a very reliable estimate of people in need. And that was vital for the, for the response effort. That complemented those initial reports where we're getting from, uh, from folks in the field. And what was nice about the, um, the satellite image-based system we had was that uh, the floods were actually started in the north of the country and slowly worked their way down. So if you have a map of Congo in your mind, uh, there's the border with the Central African Republic in the north and the border with uh, um, the Democratic Republic of Congo and Angola in the south. And those floods worked their way down uh, the Congo River Basin over a period of a few weeks. And we were getting updates satellite imagery on the extent of need in that way. That would allow us to ask the right questions and look at the right places and hopefully prioritize assistance to the places that most, uh, that most needed it. Soon after it started, I was uh, able to go up uh, to northern Congo to, to see the impacts for myself. Uh, it, was, it was quite a, quite a journey because the getting to, to, to northern Congo from Brazzaville is a, a big deal. It's uh, driving, it takes two days. There's also a flight uh, at least twice a week. It's uh, in an old uh, Chinese built plane uh, that's quite unreliable. I had to wait at the airport for um, um, two days to, to actually get onto, get onto the plane and make it to the north of Congo. And uh, once I was there, the, uh, the impacts were quite uh, startling. So of course you don't see this on the satellite imagery. You need to go out and talk to people. And it was quite clear that uh, this was not uh, a good situation at all. Uh, you'd see uh, uh, people on their rooftops. Uh, I, was, I was going around uh, on, on a boat, on one of the WFP boats in the area. So people were on their roof, moved uh, slightly inland from um, uh, where their villages had been uh, uh, before, the, before the flooding and people were living without anything. The, they, they were telling us the waters rose uh, quite quickly. They were surprised. Uh, they left things in their dwellings and we're left with, with very little uh, to face uh, essentially weeks of flooding and then uh, the aftermath of the flooding itself. And that type of information is how, as a humanitarian manager, that those types of information help us understand what needs to be done uh, and, and, and what the priorities might be. And quite clearly, there was a big issue with uh, water and sanitation, hygiene. There was an issue with uh, uh, access to, to medication because the health centers had been, had been wiped out. Schools were closed uh, because of the flooding. And of course, uh, food was a major problem. The, the, the fields had been flooded out. Cassava uh, fields had been underwater for uh, days and sometimes weeks, uh, meaning that the crop was rotting underwater, literally. It was a quite, uh, quite an impressive scene. So it sounds like you need to do a balance of some assessment, some strategic thinking before you act. You know, again, your starting quote, which stuck with me, was that amateurs maybe talk too much strategy. So what happens if you spend too much time in that assessment, too much time in the strategic thinking? What's a sign that you're doing too much strategy and not enough logistics? Well, it, it, it's easy to overthink uh, a response. In, in fact, what uh, disaster-affected communities require is, is resources and resources quickly. If you think about the flood-affected communities of the Congo River Basin, um, I remember being in that uh, in that speedboat on the uh, the, the Bangi River, um, 
in, in, in northern Congo, and people were shouting at us, waving at us from uh, from the shore, saying, "We need help now! Uh, anything we could have uh, brought at that point in time would have been uh, extremely worthwhile." So, if uh, you find that uh, distributions are not happening, and that uh, most of the effort is is, is uh, in fact uh, being spent in in, in meetings uh, or in uh, uh, analysis at the expense of doing distributions, that's, that's a bad sign for me. You need to do both at the same time. Of course, when you get to a medium-term response, uh, that's something you need to be very careful with because you need to support those local systems, uh, the local farmers, the uh, local civil society. You need to get all, all those groups going again, and, and that's something that's quite delicate. But if, if you're in those first few days and those first few weeks in the aftermath of a major disaster, you need to be able, need to, be able to go at the drop of a hat. And in fact, the planning for that needs to happen before the disaster ever occurs. You need to be prepared. You need to invest in preparedness, uh, in good baselines and a good knowledge uh, of these areas and, and of the phenomena that could disrupt them. So it's like the, that you can do that strategy and assessment. It's going to be important, but the more you can do before the disaster strikes, that when that happens and when the need is the greatest, you can't be talking strategy. You have to be going into the logistics. That's why you need to have uh, your... your, your your strategy in place, uh, your assets, especially in terms of logistics, need to be there. Uh, bringing in uh, um, helicopters or bringing in trucks uh, after the disasters hit the country is, is, you know, that's just a recipe for waiting for um, waiting a long time before being able to, to, to respond effectively. But if you have your, your ideas in place, it, it makes things a lot, uh, a lot easier and makes the response more effective. It's obvious that this foresight that you had for these most recent disasters have come from a lot of experience. Um, so maybe you can talk to us about how you, you got started working for the United Nations and the World Food Program. What inspired you to go into it? And what was your professional road that brought you to where you are now? Right. Well, I, I was inspired by uh, the folks around me, the people around me, especially uh, in my family. Uh, I'm a, um, of, of Haitian-American origin. I think the fact that uh, uh, around me, I had people who, uh, who spoke French and English, that I grew up in a bilingual household, uh, meant I was open to the wider world. Uh, that was a, a, a big factor for me. I spent a lot of time with my uh, uncles and cousins as a young man, well, as a young person uh, in the Boy Scouts. Uh, and I think that instilled in me the ethos of, of, of helping others and of uh, being outward looking. After doing my, my master's, I, I, I suppose this is where I left out. The, the United Nations World Food Program was looking for um, young Americans to hire. The World Food Program is um, largely funded by, by the US. And in the UN, there's a, um, they look for representation of, of all countries, including the donor countries. And I, I, I was there at a time when uh, they were looking for, uh, for new people to replace the, uh, uh, the old timers who were retiring. And uh, that's how I uh, ended up being offered a, a post in Niger. Uh, Niger is a uh, country in uh, the West African Sahel, which faces uh, very serious hunger issues. And that's how, uh, that's how I got started. After getting your start in Niger, you, you spent a decade in the field across Africa until you then got a leadership position at the World Food Program headquarters in Rome, Italy. What is it like being so far away from the field after working so close to the grassroots for so long and how do you keep yourself sustained during that time? 
Right. It, it's far away from the field. Uh, when, when you're in Rome, uh, that's where the World Food Program's headquarters is. You're very far from, from those country offices I, I started my career in. But I was fortunate to have a very uh, motivating job. Uh, I worked in the Food Security Analysis Service. That's the part of WFP that measures and tracks hunger worldwide. Uh, that's just a great job to have. It's a great responsibility. And for me, the way I, I, uh, what really worked for me uh, in, in that role was to try to get uh, innovation into food security analysis. Uh, if, this was at the, the start of the, um, uh, the last decade when all of a sudden a whole new set of data streams was, was becoming available for, um, for food security analysis and analysis worldwide. Uh, this was the, uh, the start of work on big data, uh, on digital, uh, mobile, and bringing those types of um, uh, resources to food security analysis was something that I found personally very motivating. We started working on um, phone surveys, uh, surveys through uh, SMS, surveys through uh, chatbots. Um, for us, that changed everything. And uh, to be able to work uh, on, on that kept me going while I was in headquarters. Um, for example, we were able to set up uh, um, a... Uh, text message-based food security survey system in uh, Liberia, Sierra Leone, and Guinea during the Ebola uh, epidemic of 2014. The system we were able to set up in just a few weeks after the, the, the epidemic started, and we were providing the World Food Program and many others with uh, critical information on food security and livelihoods at the height of that, uh, uh, that pandemic. Uh, that's one example. Uh, and, and there, there are others of how uh, even when you're working in, in a UN agency headquarters, your, your, your job can make quite, uh, quite a difference and quite an impact. And you're, you're hinting at the job evolving over time as new abilities have come in. So now you're at your nearly at 20 years, what have been the major evolutions in the job of fighting hunger at World Food Program? And what also, though, has maybe stayed the same? Well, I would say that... Um, the programs that the World Food Program implements today have nothing to do with what they were like uh, 20 years ago when I first started. I remember uh, arriving in, in, in the Sahel in Niger, a country where uh, um, more than 10% of children suffer from malnutrition, where uh, any given year you have a few million people living uh, uh, without enough food to eat. So the country facing very serious food security issues. Um, the way we approach hunger has uh, changed dramatically and for the better. Uh, a few things that we do right now, for example, there are cash transfers. Uh, they become one of the primary mechanisms to provide aid in, um, in West Africa, but also worldwide. When I started 20 years ago, uh, we would do uh, what we call in-kind assistance, which meant uh, WFP would either buy or would be given uh, food stocks by a donor that would then be distributed uh, to, to, to recipients. Providing cash transfers is very different. Uh, it's uh, much more empowering for people. There are also economic multipliers, a lot of benefits to doing cash transfers. That's one example. Another one is uh, uh, what we do with nutrition. Uh, we use better products uh, to help children with malnutrition. Uh, we're better able to, um, to monitor uh, the success of these programs. Uh, because we have a, a more structured approach to, to, to managing uh, malnutrition. There's also a lot more data in the game these days, uh, data that uh, about needs and then data about uh, uh, processes and impacts. The offices are entirely digitized right now. Uh, my office in Congo uh, has 
uh, a series of systems to, to monitor uh, needs, uh, food prices, food stocks, uh, all the financials, of course, are, are, are digitized as well, and then results too. So that, that means we, we're, we're in an environment where um, uh, that's, that's changed quite a bit. Maybe the stability that's that's there. Uh, I would say the unfortunately hunger is still here, uh, and and this is not the the the, the most optimistic story I, I have to tell. But uh, hunger in in the world has actually been uh, on the increase. Unfortunately, we we had um, significant progress during the 1990s and the, the early part of the 2000s, but that sort of ground to a halt around. Uh, 2007 and 2008, when we had the food crisis that year. As I told you, I used to work in the food security analysis department at, um, at WFP. Every year we would come out with an estimate, along with FAO and other agencies, would come out with an estimate of how many people are hungry uh, in the world. That estimate used to be around uh, 80 million people. Today, uh, we're at 130. And uh, my Former boss and mentor, the chief economist at WFP, wrote a, a column in the New York Times that you might have read two weeks ago that said that we might face 260 million people uh, being hungry if nothing is done because of the effects of the uh, COVID-19 pandemic. So the, I, I would love to have a positive story to tell, but the, unfortunately, the needs are rising and the needs are still there. And we, we do need to uh, think about how to address that need. I don't think it's because the food aid programs have not been successful. Uh, that's not the way I see it. I see uh, climate change, I see disease. We talked about Ebola. COVID-19 is also a contributor to this, uh, to this issue. Um, there's, uh, there's conflict, unresolved conflict uh, in the world. Right now, one of the biggest humanitarian emergencies in the world is Yemen. Uh, and uh, that's uh, contributed to this adverse trend to more hunger. And uh, until we find solutions to that, unfortunately, uh, uh, the need for humanitarian assistance will, will still be there. So, so when a goal like this is so enormous and the problem seems to be getting worse, I think a lot of folks go, well, then what can I do? Um, I even have, think I've seen this around COVID-19 now where people are like, well, this is so um, big and it's so widespread. What am I going to do? I'm going to maybe do nothing. And that's when the paralysis and apathy starts to appear. Um, so this issue of the problem seemingly too big to make any meaningful change, how do you think we overcome that? We have no choice but to overcome it. These are such big problems. Uh, I think they can, um, we, we've seen that increased hunger also means uh, increased uh, migration. It means increased instability. And what it should really do is renew our commitment to fighting hunger. That's, that, that should really be the starting point. But then I, I, I would understand that uh, uh, people might feel apathetic uh, after uh, uh, analyzing how, how these numbers are, are, are not going in the right direction. But what, what I would say is that there, there, there is a way to, <laughs> there is hope and, and, and there, are, there are approaches to, 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 to this problem. You might want to consider slicing off part of the problem and, and working on it, working on a thin slice of the issue uh, and, and resolving hunger by breaking it down into subcomponents. Uh, I'll give you an example of what we're doing in, in Congo. We have a, a program where we work with uh, smallholder farmers. 
We have about um, 200 smallholder farmers we, we, we've been working with for a few years. We work with more, but these guys we've worked with for, uh, for, for at least four years now. They used to have a big issue with um, post-harvest losses. Post-harvest losses are those losses that farmers have after the, the crop uh, has reached maturity. These um, quite often in Congo, what happens is that the crop is out to dry and uh, rainfall will um, um, cause part of the crop to, to rot. And we did a survey in 2017 and uh, we, we, we were horrified by the results. Uh, the, these, these farmers had lost uh, more than a third of their crop to, to post-harvest uh, issues, but mainly because of rain. So we, we tried to brainstorm with them what, uh, what would be needed. And it, it ended up that just buying tarps and getting tarps out to these uh, locations would, uh, would really help. And we've, we were proud to say that uh, we've, done, we've worked with them over five uh, crop cycles since. Uh, the percentage of post-harvest loss has dropped from um, over one-third to, to below 5% now, uh, thanks to the, the, the better use of these tarps. So, so there, there, there is hope, uh, and I would say, try to break down the problem and try to find something that's manageable and attack uh, the problem that way. Um, and and I, I think that there are also success stories, by the way, in the, the fight against hunger. Unfortunately, the numbers are not trending in the right direction. We were hoping to eradicate hunger by 2030. Uh, the, that's the uh, sustainable development goal that uh, all countries that are members of the United Nations have uh, adhered to. But it's going to be very difficult with uh, with everything that's going on. So uh, let's uh, uh, let's try to be positive about it. Let's try to find um, a way of keeping going in spite of the uh, the challenges that that we have. You've provided a really interesting story about kind of what I call choosing your lane and being focused and finding one slice. And in this case, you gave us a story around. Um, uh, crops, you know, going bad and how you overcame that with a simple solution, tarps. I wonder if you could just talk me through that a little bit more and how did that idea come up? Because it's so simple, but it made such a big difference. How did that um, idea come up? How did you know it was working? And once it was working, what was the reaction from the farmers when well, they realized uh, that was working? Maybe we should talk about Congolese agriculture in the first place. It's uh, it's a place, um, the country's an oil exporting uh, nation. Uh, it's one of the... Uh, I think it's about 400,000 barrels of oil every day that are exported from Congo, and, and, and this has lasted for decades. And Congo has been used to exporting oil and importing everything else, including food. And that means that um, agriculture has been somewhat neglected in the country. People have realized that, and they're investing more in agriculture. They have been investing more in agriculture over the past decade because it's, uh, it, was, it was a mistake uh, to neglect agriculture in this way. But what you do is, is, is you will find in, in, in rural parts of Congo, you'll find farmers with very rudimentary methods. And, um, and also, Congo was a, a socialist country for, for decades. And um, the way uh, government and uh, these farmer groups uh, um, interacted was, was, was a very uh, specific uh, relationship that you might have found in socialist countries where people would get targets, uh, for production, and they would get support from from the government, and then the government would come in and buy all the um, uh, all the surpluses. All that ended in the 1990s with um, structural adjustment, and uh, everything was uh, liberalized. But all of a sudden, these uh, these farmers lost their markets, and the um, 
consumers in, in the big cities of Congo would prefer to, to, to purchase imported food. So what we were trying to do in Congo was, was trying to work with these, with these farmer groups and see what their, their, their needs uh, had been. Thankfully, uh, and this, this, was a, this was actually a project funded by, by the European Union. Uh, they, uh, it was a $2 million project over, over three years. Um, and the idea was to, 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 to find targeted approaches uh, to, to support these, uh, these farmers. And within that project, uh, we, we discussed with the donor and with the ministry, uh, we implemented a baseline survey at the start of the project. To, and, and that's where this issue of the post-harvest losses came up. Uh, it's, a, it's an issue not only in Congo and many other African countries. And we talked to, to, to the farmers to say, look, uh, how can we address this, this issue with post-harvest losses? I mean, the, the number was, uh, like I said, more than a third. It, it, it's, it's catastrophic. These are beans, by the way, that they're growing. I'm not sure I mentioned uh, uh, the exact crop, but they, uh, these are bean farmers. And beans are, are notoriously difficult uh, to store properly. Uh, so after the, uh, uh, the suggestion actually didn't, didn't come from us. It came from, uh, from the farmers themselves. Uh, they knew what was needed. So they said, look, if you, if you, if you, if you really want to help us, uh, give us, give us tarps. And the Congo is a very thin market. Um, it might sound obvious to, to just buy tarps at the local store, but to actually get the, the types of tarps that they, the heavy duty tarps that were needed to, to protect the drying beans. Uh, that's something we had to do uh, in the capital. Uh, we need to, needed to get the specifications right. What was really helpful for us was having someone in the community. Uh, we, had, uh, we worked in two districts of, 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 of Southern Congo. And in each district capital, uh, there was a, a WFP staff member who was there. Uh, you can think of him or her as an extension worker. And their job was to get to know the farmers, understand their needs, and relay those back to us in, in Brazzaville so that we would do the right thing uh, for them. And it's really interesting when you're out there with, uh, with the WFP staff who live in these communities, they know the farmers by name. They, they know their family members by name. Uh, there's a very close relationship. And that meant we were able to, first of all, understand what they really needed. We were able to understand um, their, their expectations and manage expectations also of, of WFP. Uh, and um, since they were there for a few years, uh, we were able to have a, a very constructive relationship with these with these farmer groups who've now moved on to bigger and better things. I'm, I'm speaking about them in the past now. They're, they're still working with WFP in many ways. They've become or main suppliers of beans. Uh, last year, we bought 150 tons of, uh, they, this is actually, they, they, they grow butter beans. It's a uh, um, uh, high quality, very tasty uh, bean in, in, in Southern Congo. And we're, we're proud that uh, these farmers worked with us for a few years to get to a better place. And I think what really worked was that we decentralized uh, the entire process and we were able through uh, these surveys, these periodic surveys to pick up uh, changes in, in key indicators, including um, um, one of the big ones, which, which happened to be post-harvest uh, losses. I also have a story about something that didn't work out very well. The um, beans also need, need to be husked uh, and that's very time consuming, just separating the, the beans from the, from the hull. Um, it, it's, it's something that uh, people, people used to beat the beans to, 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 to separate the, the, uh, the beans from the husk. So we, we thought we'd buy, uh, we'd buy a de-husking de machine, and uh, those machines just uh, never worked. They cost a lot of money. Uh, they were heavy. And uh, the farmer told us, look, uh, you should have talked to us. We, 
we would have told you that what we needed were, were lighter machines that we could uh, take to the field. Uh, so we, we could do the operations in the field and then bring the machine back and bring the beans, uh, the dehusked beans back to, back to the village. We're still working on that. The machines are still there. We're trying to see if we can modify them to, to get them to work a little bit better and to, to, to meet the need. But it's, it's, for, for us, it was really about, about listening. Uh, and as you can tell, we had successes and failures. Uh, but it turned out that folks were, were actually quite happy to uh, process their beans uh, by hand. Uh, they were able to sell them, so it wasn't a, a critical factor for us. Uh, the, the fact that we were able to limit post-harvest losses significantly by using technology was, uh, was a big win. The fact that uh, the process itself that we'd hoped to improve uh, didn't improve wasn't really a barrier to the, the success of the project. You hit on something we talk about a lot in the podcast in our episodes and with our guests is that the solutions can come from the people who are experiencing the problem. Uh, but it seems like in social good, there's this paradox that we have to overcome, which is that folks prefer the shiny, um, maybe in this case, the shiny, expensive bean thrasher versus maybe the simple tarp. Uh, so did you get like any pushback from the European Union or others when you were pitching this idea of like the tarp is the answer? Um, how did you kind of, once you identified that that work was going to be the solution, did, like, yeah, did you receive any kind of skepticism? And, and if well, you did, I, how I did think, you overcome uh, that? There was skepticism overall uh, regarding the, the, the capability of these um, bean farmers to, to change the, the, the way they um, they worked. The... As I said, agriculture in Congo uh, is, is only meets about 30% of the country's needs. It's a very import-dependent country, and people are like, look, uh, why are you doing this? Uh, we need to bring in uh, large mechanized farms. We need to bring in uh, international investors with millions of dollars who can bring in combine harvesters and you know, terraform uh, the, the, the Congolese savanna into, into Kansas and, you know, and grow a lot of corn. Uh, so the approach we, we adopted in the first place was... Uh, was at variance with 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 what um, uh, what some people thought uh, Congo should should become, but the I think in terms of the solutions, there was actually quite some openness uh, about what could be tried. Of course, a lot of discussion about what exactly uh, should work. the The new shiny object uh, in, in in Congo would have really been uh, the the approach to 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 bring in, um, like I said, these big international investors in the country. You've got South African companies coming into Congo, uh, companies from Europe, from China. Congo happens to be one of the last uh, places in the world where there's a lot of uncultivated land uh, that can be converted to agriculture without causing deforestation. Uh, there's a lot of savanna in Congo. I think they talk about 10 million hectares. So there is a lot of potential. But what we were trying to tell people is, look, give the uh, smallholders a chance uh, in other African countries Large agricultural companies tend to coexist uh, with um, smallholder farmers who might uh, cultivate uh, one to two to three uh, hectares of land, uh, and, that, and then everyone's happy. South Africa is an example of this. Uh, you've got um, both a traditional and a, a very industrial agriculture sector uh, side by side, and, and, and both, both are successful. So that, 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 the, the strategy was the discussion uh, in, in, in Congo. Um, I think we were lucky to, to have uh, partners who were willing to take, uh, take a risk. 
Um, and I, I think that's really the role of these partners like the European Union, for example, and, and others is to say, look, let's, let's, let's innovate. Uh, we will provide a grant to de-risk the innovation so the government's not losing uh, its money and WP's not losing its money. The, the farmers themselves are, um, yeah, don't, don't face any financial risk from the adoption of the innovation. And, and that, that's, that's a, a recipe I think that's, that's right for, for Congo at its uh, current stage of, of development for, for, for agriculture. The, um, yeah, I think that's, that's more or less what I wanted to say about, about that. But the, there is the, the the phenomenon of the the, the new shiny thing. Um, I, I I I do think there's uh, I've seen folks come in with uh, with new machines for for agriculture for processing in, in Congo. Uh, thankfully, I, I don't think it's been fetishized to the same extent uh, in Congo than, than elsewhere, and we've been able to to, to avoid uh, that trap. Interesting. And the global, I mean, you're mentioning about this local agriculture that's growing in the Congo. And as global supply chains, they've really started to waver because of COVID-19, because of the pandemic. People are now maybe re-looking at this locally available nutritious foods. Uh, is this a trend that you're seeing? And what can folks do if they're interested in this? And, and maybe also, why is it important to look locally rather than just internationally? And well, Joe, as, as I was saying earlier, I think we've reached a, an inflection point with uh, hunger in the world. Uh, we thought we were on the right track. We thought we were on the right track until the, the late uh, 2000s when uh, the number of hungry people started ticking up again. Uh, we, we need to understand that... Uh, the world we live in now and probably in the future is a world where uh, the systems we set up in the past uh, might not work anymore. For decades, African countries like Congo uh, were absolutely fine exporting oil and importing everything else. Uh, I also lived in Senegal, which seemed to be that way. Senegal doesn't export oil, it exports other things, but it, it was very import dependent. Um, a country like Liberia also uh, just imports a lot of its food. The, the, when the international market is stable, uh, that's absolutely fine, and people get uh, uh, cheap food. Uh, and um, but that's not the that's not the way things are working anymore. We've had a, a serious economic crisis in 2007, 2008, 2009 that um, really indicated how vulnerable these countries were to international supply chain shocks. Again, with COVID nineteen. Uh, everything slowed down. Um, trucks stopped moving. The port in Pointe Noire, the South Atlantic port that brings in all the the food that Congo consumes, it's uh, more than a billion dollars a year. It's um, again more than seventy percent of the food the country consumes. That port during the month of uh, April and May 2020 uh, was perhaps at fifty percent uh, of its of its capacity, and uh, I think that that was another wake up call for for people. Um, planning the food security future of our societies. And for, for, for those of us working in the, the food security uh, and agriculture and nutrition arena, um, we really need to think about how we approach or support to local systems. And the door is open. I think folks realize that we, we just can't go on like this, relying on, on international imports. Uh, the, the, the government's plan in Congo, they, they have a five-year development plan. Um, a big part of it is economic diversification through local agriculture. 
So the doors open on on their side, but we also need to work on um, specific local foods uh, to, to to replace what used to be imported or, or, or what currently is imported, uh, so that that the country would be more resilient in case of a future shock. Um, and again, th these things are might become more frequent with uh, the impact of climate change. Uh, we've had the impact of pandemics, uh, global economic disruption. And unfortunately, the, the quiet decades we had before the 2000s are probably not going to come back. Uh, and therefore, we, we do need to work with uh, the private sector, with uh, these producer groups uh, to, to, to promote local, nutritious, healthy foods. One of the things we, we just launched in Congo is um, the use of a, uh, a, a peanut and cassava bar. You can think of it as a cassava-based Snickers bar. It's a handmade uh, by local women's groups. These uh, local groups make these, uh, make these cassava and peanut bars. Uh, it's cassava, peanut, a little bit of salt, sometimes chili if you want, uh, if you want a little bit of a kick. They weigh about uh, 200 grams and uh, they're individually wrapped in, uh, in local leaves. They're steamed. And uh, these products keep for about five or six days. And what we are doing at WFP with, uh, with a grant from one of our, do our donors, uh, Canada, we will be distributing these peanut uh, and cassava bars in the uh, local schools to thousands of children uh, so that they have a, a local, tasty, nutritious snack uh, when they go to school. Uh, also, it's, it's very nutritious, so it, it, it increases and supports their, their immunity at a time of COVID-19. But also, uh, it, it promotes that local agriculture, that local uh, value chain. These are things that uh, WFP and others are looking at right now because after everything I told you about Congo sort of being a, a very import-dependent country, uh, it has a lot of ideas and resources and a tradition around food that can be built on to support a better future. Uh, this product, uh, the, the cassava uh, peanut bar, it's called mbalapinda in the local language. It's a, a snack that, uh, that was invented about um, 100 years ago during colonization. The uh, colonial authorities imposed a, a head tax on, on people. That meant that uh, every uh, Congolese man uh, would have to pay a uh, three-franc um, tax to, to colonial authorities. Uh, the only way they could make that kind of money was to work uh, collecting rubber or, or on public works like uh, building railways. And the women of Congo, uh, for the first time in, in generations, they had to uh, adapt to their menfolk uh, leaving uh, for, 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 for days or weeks at a time. And they invented this, this cassava and peanut recipe so that the men would have a nutritious meal they could take with them, that they could take with them to the field uh, and uh, that could be consumed cold. And that would be very nutritious so that uh, their men could do the, the, the work that colonial authorities asked of them. And uh, maybe what we're doing right now is, is, is we're, we're trying to bring these things um, to the floor, see if we can improve the capabilities of the groups that produce these foods. Uh, so the women's groups we work with are 16 of them. Um, we discussed, and uh, it seems that the blender would be something that uh, they would need, sort of a, a large blender. Also, um, a roaster to, to roast the peanuts, and uh, that that would allow them to produce a lot more uh, uh, these uh, these snack bars, and we're hoping to bring uh, the production of these snack bars up to almost forty thousand a week. Uh, and we're thinking that th this is the type of thing we need to do to, to to make sure that Congo can feed itself. 
the next time there's a global economic uh, disruption. Well, let's, uh, let's work with these groups, let's work with these local recipes, and hopefully we can preserve uh, food security and nutrition even at a time of crisis. That's both a delicious sounding delicious. and inspiring Guaranteed. story. Uh, <laughs> and there may be a lot of folks listening to this that get inspired and now they want to do something locally, um, especially around, let's say, climate change or their environment. Um, and I'm wondering if you can give some advice here that can stop what I call folks doing the wrong thing for the right reasons. It's it's one of the biggest pitfalls when someone first gets inspired and wants to do something. Um, you know, it's about finding that appropriate, impactful action they can take. And one thing that you've been talking about that I find interesting is that tree planting, which is a kind of a go-to thought of a lot of people, might not be the best use of money to fight climate change. So maybe you can talk a little bit about, you know, why that is, and then any advice you want to give someone who is inspired to take Probably on doing, action. Doing the the wrong thing for the right reason is is, is a, a plague uh, in the um, in the social sector. I think the uh, the example I, I like using is, is actually the, the cash versus in-kind um, example. When there's, a, when there's a hurricane, people will rush to their supermarket to buy supplies for that community that's been affected uh, or will donate clothing or will donate uh, used items. Um, that's the, the wrong thing because the best thing to do in those situations is actually to make a cash grant uh, to, to the Red Cross or to whatever organization is, is out there um, providing, providing relief. Uh, I think for climate change, you also have a, a lot of people who want to help um, and who probably um, have, haven't had a chance to, to look into the issues in depth and therefore um, might make the, the wrong decision. Uh, so uh, tree planting, you need to be careful with tree planting for a variety of reasons, including a competition with, uh, with food crops and competition for, for other resources. Um, what we've been working on in Congo is, uh, is, is actually a lot of um, um, adaptation and um, uh, doing things like introducing fuel-efficient stoves. If you use a, uh, a fuel-efficient stove, you can cut the... Uh, the amount of wood being used for cooking in a household by by forty percent, uh, things like that are are extremely effective, uh, very uh, um, yeah, very impactful approaches that are probably not well known enough, and maybe the onus is on is on us uh, to better communicate and better make it known that solutions um, are are more desirable than uh, than others, or that these solutions are the right ones. Of course, it's sort of hard to say that there's one best way uh, to resolve a big social problem like hunger. So uh, a multiplicity of approaches are, are, are fine. But to those who want to help, uh, you know, read up, uh, talk to people. Social media is great for, 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 for finding ideas and papers. Uh, but yeah, think before you you act. Think before you donate, uh, because there um, yeah there are mistakes to be to be made. And what advice would you give to someone who's ready to take an even further step to consider a career in humanitarian work? You, you've had a really um, impactful career in so many different countries. If someone maybe has just taken that class in school that has inspired them to get going, what advice would you give to someone who's thinking about that career in humanitarian um, one work? One of them is really easy. Uh, learn, a, learn a language that's not English. 
Uh, the um, the humanitarian world is starved for uh, good French speakers, good uh, speakers of Spanish and Arabic and uh, uh, other languages. So if, if um, again, uh, focus on your languages, I think that's that's uh, my number one piece of advice. Uh, you don't want to be in a situation where you're uh, in the country and not able to interact uh, with uh, uh, more than well, with the local staff or with more than uh, the, the few of them who, who actually speak English well. Uh, so, uh, yeah, bone up on your languages. Then um, you need to consider if, you're, if, you're, if you want to get started in the humanitarian area. The um, for me, it's been a, it's been a fantastic ride with the World Food Program, of course. But there are very real um, issues with uh, living uh, abroad and away from your family. Uh, you need to be sure that you're willing to do that. Uh, that means uh, um, spending um, months away from home, uh, not seeing um, not seeing your family, or your friends for maybe sometimes a year at a time. So give give that some thought. Um, also consider that uh, at the start of your career, uh, you need to be willing to, to volunteer. Uh, and you will probably need to compete with volunteers. So uh, the the big paycheck uh, that's something you wait for. Uh, it 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 doesn't. Uh, it's not there at the start. Uh, you, you need to be willing to work for uh, um, much lower wages than, um, uh, than 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 in comparative professions. Uh, if if you if you were like me doing uh, economics at uh, uh, doing economic analysis for the World Food Program, uh, I. The, the, the same job someone somewhere else would would pay a lot more, um, but for me I was okay with it. It's it's uh, it's it's fine. It's like a teacher. You don't uh, you don't do it just for the money. You get a lot of satisfaction. You get a, uh, a lot of uh, a lot out of your job that's um, that's other than your paycheck. But if, but do realize that when you get started, you might um, uh, you might have to again compete with people who volunteer or have to volunteer and have the resources to do that. Excellent. I think those are some sage words of wisdom you've shared. Uh, and now that we're at the end here, how can folks who are interested to continue with your story and to learn about what you're doing in uh, the Congo, where can folks keep track of uh, what you're up to? Look, we have a great uh, communications person at WFP Congo. Uh, you should check out our Facebook and uh, Twitter pages. They're, they're quite active. Uh, we've got the stories about uh, Bimbala Pinda, that uh, cassavan peanut bar uh, up right now if you, if you want to learn more about it. We have a, a good uh, YouTube channel. We've got uh, a series of videos up there. The, uh, the YouTube channel is called Pam Congo. Pam is a WFP in French, P-A-M. So if you go to Pam Congo, you will find uh, videos that describe in, in less than two minutes what we do and what the food security issues uh, in Congo are and, and, and what some of the responses might be. Um, I think you'd, you'd find that um, uh, interesting. And then maybe for, for, for those of you who are interested in contributing to, to the program, the, uh, an interesting resource is uh, Share the Meal. Share the Meal is an application that you'll find on you know, wherever you get your apps. The, what the app does is um, encourage you to share uh, your meal with someone else. And uh, the, the, the application will take your credit card details. And when you tap the app, it sends money to, uh, to the World Food Program. Uh, we've been able in Congo to get uh, resources from uh, Share the Meal to, to do what we call homegrown school feeding, which means uh, providing school meals based on local recipes and local foods uh, like cassava, uh, like other foods through, uh, through this app. So I would encourage folks listening and who want to contribute to, to, to WFP uh, in Congo or elsewhere to download Share the Meal 
and um, check it out uh, and, and and make a donation that way. Thanks, uh, Jean-Martin. I will definitely be thinking about this during my next meal. And um, I'm wondering when uh, you, that cassava peanut version of the Snickers will come out. So I'm going to keep an eye out for that too. So I'm going to go with one more question and then we'll uh, end this. Um, all right. You, you, in your career, you've been to places that no tourist has probably ever stepped foot are there any specific places or people or experiences that are most memorable to you from your humanitarian career? Um, I, I have to say the, I mean, I, I'd, love, I'd love to give you a story for Congo, but I'll start with a story for Mauritania. It's a, it's a country I lived in for, for, for three years. It's in the Sahara Desert, a very hostile environment uh, for, for, for a lot of reasons. Uh, but there's a, there's a community of people who uh, lived up on a plateau uh, in, in, in Mauritania. Uh, you can think of the uh, landscapes in uh, Arizona. Uh, it's the same type of uh, landscape. Um, and you had a community of about 100 people living up in, on, on a plateau. It's a community called uh, El Adla. And the people there were uh, um, very attached to their, to their community. It's their land. It's a very dry, very uh, uh, unforgiving place, but uh, it's it's their home. And uh, I remember that um, I would stop by that village probably a couple times a year to understand how they were doing. And I uh, would always get very good information about um, how Mauritania as a whole was doing from just talking to the folks in that um, in that in that place. And I um, I remember a year we did a project uh, with them, and they they told us the big difficulty for us is we're at the top of the plateau. And uh, we can't get a car up here. Uh, so if someone's sick, uh, we have to carry them down um, down the plateau uh, by um, on, on on the back of a mule or um, or, or a donkey. They, they don't have mules; it's it's, it's a donkey. Um, and then from there, you, you you can get them to the to the main town, which was uh, probably um, twenty kilometers away from where they were. So we, we agreed that we would work with them to, to improve the, the road, the track up to their, um, their community. And uh, there was a, yeah, and, and, and the next time I, I visited, they, they, they were able to, with, with help from WFP, uh, so we provided food rations and tools, they were able to get together and improve the road to the, that, 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 that would get onto the plateau from, uh, from a sea of dunes. You should imagine, uh, uh, sand dunes and, and this plateau rising out of the sand dunes and uh they were able to get a road up there and um this community was uh thrilled that time i came to visit because they they told me that they were finally getting um uh, once a week a, a vehicle would pass through and that meant uh that they could travel outside their community it meant that they could uh, go to market it meant they could sell uh their animals it meant they could have a basically a, a, a better, um, well, better prospect uh, for for in, in a lot of areas. Uh, they could get someone out if, the, if that person was sick. Uh, and uh, yeah, to me, that that's that's something I'll, I'll remember uh, as, as 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 a place that I'm sure no tourist has set foot in, uh, where, uh, where I think we were able to do something special with the uh, with the community. What's interesting to see is that everyone aspires to, to progress. Everyone aspires, uh, you know, it, be it that community in Mauritania or or this community 
uh, in Congo, everyone does aspire to, to a little bit more uh, and uh, to continue progressing. I think that's a great story to end on because I think a lot of what you share with us will inspire and have others aspiring towards a career where they can have these types of experiences and make that kind of impact. So thank you so much for your time and sharing a little bit with us on the podcast. All right, Joe. Thanks a lot. That's our episode today. And I want to thank everyone who helped to make it possible. Our editor was Simon Green and the podcast producer was H. Cape Clote. My gratitude to Jean-Martin Bauer, who gave us a bit of his time in between the huge responsibilities he has for the communities across Congo. You can learn more about his work on Facebook at WFP Congo PAM. If you're interested to support WFP Congo, you can download the Share the Meal app, which is a meaningful way to donate and help WFP deliver meals to school children across the Congo. Our episode was recorded on Zencaster, hosted on SoundCloud, and spread across platforms like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. If you are interested to learn more about humanitarian action and social impact in Africa, listen to episode 20 with our guest interview, Bright Simmons. Until next time, I'm Joe Agoda, and this is the Let's Break Good Podcast.